0: in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. Welcome to Rob Kane's Ancient Rome Refocused. History for the Brave This is Rob Kane. Hello everybody. Welcome to Episode 10, Season 2 of Ancient Rome Refocused. Today on the show, we have Natalie Haynes, who wrote the book The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. I will be interviewing her later in the show. The title of this podcast is Nothing New Under the Sun. Get over it. In her dreams she could see Professor Dennehy. He was her classics instructor at the University of Chicago. He wears a black turtleneck. He wears it all the time. Long red hair that falls down the back of his neck and a touch of grey at the temples. He was an aging elf, but a handsome one. As if in a dream. One can see his lips move, and she struggles to hear what he has to say. Over the sound of the ocean, she moves forward, attempting to read his lips. Dawn rose up and left her ocean bed. She rubs her nose in her sleep. Did you not hear me, girl? Dawn rose up and left her ocean bed. Now his voice was loud. Like an alarm clock. Okay, okay, she was up. Sheesh, Professor Dennehy. She was now awake. The alarm goes off, and the sound machine plays a recording of the sea. It helps her sleep. It is Sunday morning, and she reaches out, hoping to feel her new boyfriend, Dennis, lying next to her. Usually, a thigh or an arm meets her touch. Today, nothing is there, except a clean, flat sheet. Empty. He is gone. It had just a few days before. He left for London for his new job. He had kingdoms to build, he said, the newest partner of Valley Holdings, location London. And then I shall be the CEO of my own company, my own limited corporation. He said it proudly. He said it like a man who could see a future that only he could see. It was if the gods were telling him something whispering in his ear one of the lucky of which that is so annie met dennis at a local bar an introduction by a friend and sometimes she felt he had been swept up on her part of the beach by pure chance directed by the fates jakes on was like that people swept in made friends and left at all hours a small island in the middle of a large city where everyone is your friend, until it's time to leave, or you did not pick up a round, or offered to pay the check, or your pickup line with the blonde or brunette was not well received. They took to each other. He was originally from London, but was temporarily in Chicago, a stop on a world tour which took him to Hong Kong, Australia, Italy, Berlin, New York, and Chicago. Chicago was her home and she decided to show him the city. The next day they attended a game at Wrigley Field and took the elevator to the top of the Sears Tower. To her surprise, he delayed his flight. That night, they had dinner at O'Brien's Riverwalk Restaurant. Two plates of fennaccini topped off with two glasses of Merlot. She asked him to tell him of his travels, and three hours were spent in conversation. Walking with him in the streets of Hong Kong, she could see the neon lights in his eyes and the smell of spice and fish coming from small cafes hidden deep in rain-swept alleys. Once more, she dreamed of Professor Dennehy. He was reciting something familiar. Dido leads her guests through the heart of Carthage, displaying Venetian power. The city readied for him. Professor Dennehy did not have to read from a copy of the Aeneid. It seemed that he knew it by heart. She would speak her heart. "'but her voice chokes midward. "'Now at dusk she calls the feast to start again, "'madly begging to hear again the agony of Troy, "'to hang on his lips again, savoring his story. "'Thank you, Professor Danahy,' she said in her dream. "'Once more she was back at school, sitting in the front row, "'wearing her Anne Taylor sweater and her Sam and Libby quilted satin shoes.' She raised her hand, and the professor interrupted his lecture. He leaned against the podium and sought her out with his lovely blue eyes. Yes, Annie, a question? Professor Dennehy, what are you doing in your dream? Upon waking, she wondered about Dennis. What was his story anyway? She knew that the world tour was his last hurrah before he was expected to settle down. He talked about his father not being happy with him especially after his mother divorced three years ago. He mentioned that it was like being exiled. He had a flat in St. John Wood, and even that was not far away enough from the bickering. I had to leave, he said. Traveling seemed to be the only solution. To Annie, traveling the world seemed a luxury. They did not sleep together that first night. But she would have done so willingly if he had asked. That night, she decided to convince him that Chicago was the best place, the only place, for him to build his empire. To her surprise, he decided to delay his flight for a week. And of course, that night, she dreamed of Professor Dennehy. Dito burns with love, he said from the lectern. The tragic queen, she wanders in a frenzy through her city streets like a wounded doe. He pauses. Dito burns with love. Did you not hear me, girl? Dito burns with love. Are you asleep, lass? She woke up and buried her head in the first available naked shoulder, Dennis. Shut up, she moaned. Shut up, Professor Dennehy. Just shut up. Dennis looks down from the pillow and says, Did you say something? She looks up at him, his chest exposed, his arms muscled. Nothing, she said. And then she thought to herself, What a man. Her sister thought so, too. She had taken Dennis to meet him at Jake's. In front of Dennis, everything was about how great Chicago was. But he went to the bathroom. It was all about him. Who was he? How did you meet him? Are you crazy to think he would stay for a woman? For just a woman? A woman, she said in a slightly ticked-off voice to her sister. Meaning me. Her sister shook her head. I know you're great, she said with emphasis. I'm wondering about him. His jet leaves in a week. I admit that's a whole week to find a way to change his mind about leaving in the meantime. She winked at her. Above them, a voice spoke. What are you ladies talking about? He had returned from the john, looking happy. She wondered how long he was standing there. But with the sound of the music that was usually played... Several levels above what it takes to hear what the person next to you is saying. She doubted it. You, she said with a delicious smile as he sat down next to her. And they ordered another round of drinks. This time, he told them of London. That night, she once more dreamed of her classics professor. Of all the people to dream of, she had to dream of her first crush. She was like all the other girls of the class, finding excuses to visit his office and volunteering to write extra papers on Virgil. For Dennehy, it was always Virgil. In her dream, she saw him at his desk, reading her translation that she had stayed up late to finish. Think of what a city you shall see, my sister, of a kingdom rising high, if you marry such a man. With a Trojan army marching at our side, think, think of the glory of Chicago. He stopped, blinked, crossed out the word. He looked up at her and said, You must be playing with me. The word translates to Carthage he continued to read think how the glory of carthage will tower to the crowds just ask the gods for pardon win them with offerings treat your guests like kings weave together pretext for delay he looked up and seemed to say the last sentence with emphasis weave together a pretext for delay Thank you, Professor Dennehy. Thank you for teaching me that Dido could connive with the best of them, but so can I. The next day she talked to her father. He was the CEO of Megalos Corporation, and thus he had power. She did as well, for she was listed as owner, for being female brought wonderful benefits for a female-owned business. Her father called himself the regent, and she was the queen, the heir apparent. I want him to stay, she told him. And you think a job will do it, he asked. It can't hurt, she responded. He wants to own a business someday. He calls it establishing his own kingdom. Her father looked out the window. What's his background, he asked. He is a graduate of Cambridge. A-levels. He's smart. Her father interrupted and handsome i suppose a god she nodded yes was all she said dad your company is real estate that is a perfect company for anyone to start an empire before he answered he nodded yes but it's your empire that was all he said before agreeing to meet him dennis delayed his trip once more using the time she introduced him to her father and her friends together they attended several parties on the north side and walked through the five-room apartment holding hands most of the people were her friends but dennis charmed them all strangers found him irresistible he was the type of man that entered a room a stranger and left with a room full of friends and a pocket filled with emails scribbled on snatches of paper at the annual lakefront air show he clung to her and she was proud of the attention it was a warm day looking up at the various aircraft flying low over the city hot dogs coats and feeling the sun on their cheeks and backs as a breeze came off the lake Both the lake and city sparkled and echoed with the roar of engines speeding across the sky like Olympian chariots. Dennis was an athletic sort and she proposed an adventure. Three couples would go rock climbing at Starved Rock. It was near La Salle Township. It was now a state park and rock climbing had grown inside the park with the popularity of the sport in town. Most people that took the trip were from the city. The next day, Annie and Dennis, with some couples from her company, would try their hand. As long as it was safe, she said to Dennis. That night, before they left, she once more dreamed of Professor Dennehy. He was standing again in the old lecture room. rose up and left her ocean bed he said once more it was time to get up lately the old professor was becoming her alarm clock she moaned while getting up and both dennis and annie rushed to get their equipment together between bites of toast it took about two hours to make it out to the state park. The day was spent hanging off sides of walls, their voices echoing up and down the cliff face, everyone laughing and feeling the thrill of seeing the earth and sky from unusual angles and convincing themselves they are cheating death itself. In the afternoon, they were back on terra firma of fire. Beer for the guys, wine for the women, and the smell of hamburgers and hot dogs filled the campsite with a cozy aroma reminiscent of 4th of July or a lazy summer day. It was around 3 p.m. when they saw the rain clouds moving in. The storm clouds were rolling black cotton. The party broke up. "'for Southern Illinois was known for tornadoes. "'The first raindrops fizzled the fire, "'and everyone scattered for the cars. "'It was a storm, a heavy rain, "'and it was wiser to wait it out in the safety of the cars "'than to try to escape it while on the road. "'Each couple headed for their vehicles, "'and soon the windshield was splattered with droplets, "'and the roof sounded with a deafening roar and staccato. "'She looked to the left and could see the small red Camry "'of Dusty Meadows and her boyfriend Jerry.' They were kissing. She laughed, and Tammy and Albert and the silver Lexus parked on the right were engaged in the very same activity. Dennis gave her a shy, devious look. And that was all that was needed. Professor Dennehy pushed into her thoughts. This had to be a dream. He was at the blackboard, and the following was written with chalk in his descriptive, cursive hand. The skies began to grumble. Peals of thunder first and the storm breaking next, a cloudburst pelting hail in. Professor Dennehy then turns around and begins to recite, From now on, Dido cares no more for appearances, nor for her reputation either. She no longer thinks to keep the affair secret. No, she calls it marriage. The dream, or whatever the hell it was, ends. It disappears once Dennis touches her. Immediately she whispers, Shut up, Professor Danahi. It was time for him to leave, for she was making love in a Chrysler love baron. And she did not care who knew it. The storm, the rain on the roof, the lightning blotted out the sounds of her moans. The thunder was not as loud as her thoughts, however. The next day, Dennis got a phone call on his cell phone. She was in the kitchen, cooking pasta, standing over a boiling pot. Dennis was in the living room with the SPN on the tube looking for the latest scores for Manchester United, kidding her mercilessly on how boring he thought American baseball was when compared to soccer. When he took the call, the demeanor of his voice changed, like he had received a summons down from Mount Olympus. At first she thought it was bad news, and she hovered outside the kitchen, but always close enough to hear snatches, "'of conversation. "'She could make out the following. "'It was his father. "'He was calling from the Savoy Grill, "'and he wanted Dennis to come home. "'She peeked out of the kitchen "'and she saw his eyes look up to meet hers. "'He quickly turned away to the window "'after giving her a quick smile. "'Embarrassed, she returned to the kitchen "'and looked down at the strands of spaghetti "'boiling in the pot. "'The strands twisted in and out.' like roads going off in many directions, twisting and rolling in the water, like a Gordian knot of indecision. Annie liked life simple. A lasagna was more her taste, suitable for an heiress of an empire of real estate. First floor, cheese, second floor, meat, and third floor, spinach, laid out in neat and tiny floors of pasta shelving. Something was going on. A few minutes later, she tried to eavesdrop again and could only catch a word here or there. Words like job, offer, and something like compensation. He snapped the phone shut, and she fled back into the kitchen to hide. She purposely stuck her head in the fridge, pretending to be absorbed with the butter and a jar of parmesan cheese. "'Who was that?' she asked in a bored voice, as if it was inconsequential." In the importance of getting dinner on the table. He put her off. Oh, he did admit his father called, but he said little about the conversation. He was keeping secrets. The rest of the evening he watched ESPN, suddenly engrossed in the details of American sports. That night she watched Dennis carefully, she expected him to give her the speech. You know the speech, the kind of, that goes like this. Look, Annie, it's been great. We had a great couple of weeks, and I have a job waiting for me back in London, and Dad is waiting for me. You've been a real ace, an ace of a girl, but it's time to part. She couldn't sleep, so she just sat in the bed looking at his shoulders and his back. It's 3 a.m. He gets up. Instead of angling towards the bathroom like she expected, he angles towards the living room. She hears the keystrokes of the Toshiba. Keystrokes touch your ear like the sound of rain hitting the glass pane on the outside of the window. The ender key is touched. Everyone hits it with a great downward stroke, especially when they finish writing something of great importance. Silence. And then she can hear him, softly, walking back into the room. He gets into bed and grabs too much of the covers, like men do. She waits for a few hours, she waits for his breathing to slow. Then she carefully gets out from underneath the coverlet and goes out into the living room and sits down at the Toshiba. He was writing an email to his father and was trying to cover his tracks. You want to stop someone from reading your emails? Delete it from the sent file. Amateur. Amateur. Her eyes glaze over as she reads a request to his father to book him a flight on British Air so that he can come home. He is ready to flee. She sits in the dark. The only thing lit is her face in the light of the computer screen. She blinks at the message and cannot believe it. Up from the shadows, she can feel Professor Dennehy take form. She turns in her chair and looks back at him and says, I suppose you got something to say? Dennehy looks down over her shoulder and says, Oh my god, will the stranger just sail off and make a mockery of our realm? Another quote from the Aeneid. She says nothing in response. Professor Dennehy can come and go in memory all he wants. Apparently, as all men who leave, so can Professor Dennehy. She felt her fingers move across the keyboard. She hits a determined enter, an index finger click. With no hesitation, sends the message on its way back to his father. From her dream, Professor Dennehy praises her email, or was it her translation? This is a good job, Annie. You took it straight from the Latin, you're my best student. She nods in the dark. Am I your best girl? she asked. She was one of many students that had caught his eye, and she joined at least one or two others to sit after hours and hear him tell tales of Cambridge, of his student days. She fell for him and gave him whatever he wanted. Another boring story of a graduate student falling for a professor's charms. She went back to bed. It was two days before Dennis realized his request for tickets to Heathrow had been canceled. His father had no idea his son was not on the other end of the email, saying something about changing his mind and wanting to stay a few weeks longer. It was at the Cubs game that Dennis got a call on a cell. That was the day of bright sunshine and the crowd shouting because Stalin Castro got on base, and her heart racing under a long, drawn out kiss during a lull in the game. For her, everything darkened and fell to the earth, for Dennis put the pieces of the puzzle together, and he knew what had happened. That it was she that sent the email to his father. For he had pretended to be asleep just as she had done. He said nothing, watched the game, was congenial, was perfect in every way, but refused to discuss the call. Occasionally, she would glance at his face and catch him lost in thought. No longer was he at the Cubs game, but his mind was on some distant shore, and he didn't even look up when Castro hid it out of the park. Quotes from the Aeneid float forward from her past. She is a classics girl, true to the book that she slaved over to check and recheck for the right words, and supported by a translation by Fagel. As if the words came over the game's public address system, He is driven by duty now. In spite of all, he obeys the God's commands. Three days later he left. It was abrupt, done. The tie severed, brutal, and quick. Their relationship ended with a breezy note left for her on the dresser. Annie, it's been great, but duty calls. Do people still say that? Thank you very much for showing me the city. I shall remember you as Chicago Annie. Like Indiana Jones. A joke. Never met a classics, girl, before. Do you dream in Latin? I shall miss you. Keep in touch now. Cheers. Dennis. End of letter. She sets the note down and lets out a long sigh. Didn't anyone ever tell him that the word Chicago is Native American for smelly onions? He had just called her, Smelly Onion Annie. What a way to say goodbye. To tell a girl you smell like an onion. Outstanding, she thought. For the next couple of weeks, she expected to get a phone call from him. The phone call never came. She also expected to get a letter. That never came as well. The hardest thing for her to do was to go to bed alone and to wake up alone. He was gone. Off to some distant shore to start his empire, and a woman, especially a woman, would not get in his way. Life goes on, and two weeks later she stands with her sister behind Jake's, having a cigarette. There's a law that says you can't smoke inside the restaurant, so they stand in the alley, sharing a match. I'm sorry it didn't work out, her sister says after giving her a kiss on the cheek. I feel like an idiot, she confesses. How many times has that been said after every relationship? I feel like an idiot. I was foolish to try to change his mind, she says. There's only one thing left for me to do. Her sister's eyes look at her questioningly. Wondering what she meant by that. Nothing foolish, I hope, Her sister says with concern. Annie pulls from her purse a picture of Dennis. In the photo, he is hugging her. With the John Hancock Tower rising up behind them, like a mountain wall. They are both happy. Again, the memory of Professor Dennehy rises up. She can see him at the end of the alley walking towards her. No, Professor Denny. Not this time. No quotes from the Aeneid. Nothing about love or passion do I want to hear. She takes out a match and strikes it and sets the photo on fire, and it burns slowly and falls to the ground in ash. Okay, I couldn't help myself. I had to do it. I took my dramatic narration and mixed it in with the Aeneid. If it sounds like a chiclet with a little bit of Virgil thrown in, well, you got it. It was. I did this in honor of Natalie Haynes, who's on our show today. I could explain to you who Natalie Haynes is, but... I went on Google, and I found a variety of different TV shows that she was on, and I came to the realization that nobody can introduce herself better than Natalie Haynes. So, here we are, folks. Natalie Haynes in her own words.
1: Hello, I'm Natalie Haynes, and I've written a book called The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, which kind of does what it says on the cover. It's all about how you can live better, know more about the modern world, if you spend a little time looking at the ancient world. So, questions I have tried to answer, among others, include uh, how do you become a hundred millionaire in a world where there's no stock market and there won't be one for thousands of years? Uh, When did the first Bond villain throw his first hapless underling into a pool of man-eating fish? Uh, Is the TV show uh, The Wire based on Sophocles? Did women have rights millennia before they could even vote? And perhaps most intriguingly of all, where do we get the phrase to lick it into shape? The Greek historian Thucydides, uh, one of my personal favorites, uh, though you wouldn't have known that when I was 16, uh, when, alas, I hated him with all my heart, uh, once wrote, and I'm afraid I will have to read this because I'm too old to memorize it, once wrote, It will be enough for me, however, if these words of mine are judged useful by those who want to understand clearly the events which happened in the past and which, human nature being what it is, will at some time or other, and in much the same ways, be repeated in the future. My work is not a piece of writing designed to meet the taste of an immediate public, but was done to last forever. Well, we've all told ourselves that after a Natalie bad review, Haynes, but nonetheless... Natalie a stand-up comedian, writer and broadcaster. She's a regular panellist on Newsnight Review, and uh, the book quiz and Radio 4, and with her background... Um and learning and teaching classics, her next book is called The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, and it's due to be published next year. Natalie, what did Uh, you think of it? Only if I hurry up, (laughs) (laughs) to to put it in the nicest possible way. Um, Thank you very much. I had a lovely time. Um, And uh, what I wanted to talk about off the back of it was uh, very briefly a slightly older democracy than 200 years ago, namely the first one, Athens, uh, 5th century BC, or BCE, I should say, godless creature that I am, and, uh, and the role of the comedy, mockery of a democratic state played at that point, um, because uh, I think it's important. Um, so Athens is, is not just democracy like we have democracy. We have representative democracy, right, where we vote for somebody and then they go and vote for stuff on our behalf. In Athens, and we have to just bypass for the purpose of five minutes the fact that women and foreigners and slaves and everyone else is not, they're basically on a par with a cow. Uh, <laughs> Voting, speaking, so this is just Athenian men we're talking about, and for that I apologise, but there's little I can do. Uh, you turn up <laughs> and you vote yourself on the issues of the day. You go to a big hill, it is called the Panix, everyone debates, and then you raise your hand for what proposal you're for or against. And these are big things, like shall we go to war uh, against Sparta, shall we declare a campaign against Sicily, let's give that a punt, what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, really, a whole generation of young men. Never mind. So... My point is that as this was happening, uh, and and the the power of uh, ancient Athenians was entirely vested really in rhetoric. It was invested in the ability you had to turn up and say something really, really convincingly. And so the great statesman of ancient Athens is Pericles, um, who has this incredible capacity to persuade. Uh, And then he is old money, he's elite. uh, And gradually, as the 5th century advances, uh, a man called Cleon turns up. He's a tanner. Uh, for want to a better phrase, not old money. God forbid, trade. And uh, as all this is happening, Aristophanes, who is easily the finest comic playwright I would say ever, uh, if you want to see where The Simpsons got all their ideas, go straight back to him uh, for that's where. Uh, surrealism and political commentary, hello, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> My particular weak spot is that I have always, and I do mean always, picked boys who practice ninja rejection. Yeah, which is when you don't break up with someone when you clearly intend to. You just wear black and sort of melt into the wall. <laughs> and the thing is, you can't move on when you don't know that you've been chucked. Do you know what I mean? You can't get closure. Oh, God, sorry, it's all gone a bit Ricky Lake with the shit of hair. You do know what I mean. The last time I was really badly chucked, I gave quite serious thought to sending the boy in question a dead pigeon in a box. Because <laughs> you sure would know it was over then. <laughs> And I gave really serious thought to the logistics of it, because I didn't want to actually kill a pigeon, right? I'm vegetarian. That would be the behaviour of a mad lady. Um, okay. You get that sending it is fine, right? Good. Oh, yeah, I am, I've am. i been vegetarian for about 15 years, and before anyone asks, yes, my shoes are leather, no, I don't have a problem with that. My philosophy is that I won't eat anything with a little furry face. I will peel it and then wear it. Um, LAUGHTER Just the little fluffy ones. (laughs) They make the best gloves. Um... Everything about the Athenian state, he mocks the democracy itself, he mocks the fact that they make poor decisions, uh, and he does so at the same time as being incredibly smutty. Uh, I bring to your attention, of course, the Lysistrata, where the women decide to try and stop war by having a sex strike and then all the male characters have to come on wearing a huge stick-on phallus. Um... So, who says you can't be funny and anti-war at the same time? Not Aristophanes, is who. Uh, He is very capable of making extremely personal, extremely ungenerous remarks about Cleon. Uh, He turns him in the nights, I think I'm right to say, uh, into a sausage seller, something even more low-rent than a tanner, as if such a thing were possible. Um, It comes to my mind, because only last week, the BBC Trust was uh, getting slightly grouchy with Frankie Boyle for making personal comments about Rebecca Adlington. Uh, He said, in case you were uh, to have missed it, that she looks a little bit like somebody reflected in the back of a spoon. uh, it is it is a profoundly ungenerous remark it's no less funny for it as you correctly observe.
0: Uh,
1: it's cruel is what it is but cruelty is what comics have always provided and the fact that we now disapprove of them or from time to time that we disapprove of them is is simply a, a fad and here is where I would say that democracy is crucial if you want to mock something you really need to do it under a democracy. Once the Athenian democracy falls at the end of the 5th century BCE, uh, then you end up with, you know, blah, blah, Alexander, blah, blah, rise of kings in Rome, blah, blah, emperors. And comedy, that kind of comedy, mockery, contemporary mockery, it disintegrates. So old comedy, Aristophanes, was replaced by new comedy. New comedy, to save you ever having to read Plautus, is very, very, very much like My Family. Just give it a miss. Um, <laughs> You just save your life. You might as well do something else. And it takes ages. It takes satire, the only form of art that the Romans actually created, everything else they stole from the Greeks. It takes satire before you get mockery of actual people again. But this is key. When Juvenal writes Satire 4, which is about uh, a giant turbot has been caught, and they want to take it to Domitian, he's the emperor at the time, um, and cook it for him, but they know that they'll screw it up. They'll get the wrong... It's too big for the dish that they've got. They'll get it wrong. And they know if they get it wrong, they'll probably be put to death. And it's a really, really funny satire, but this is vital. It's about something which has already happened. By the time Juvenal is writing about Domitian, Domitian can't hurt him, for the very good reason that had he written it contemporaneously with Domitian, he would have been dead by Christmas, uh, or at least some ides. Um, so my suggestion would be that if we want comedy to retain its role as mocking those in power, and I think we do. Uh, I agree with the lady up there. I think it's very tempting when... Uh tragedy befalls people, especially when they are young. It makes it extremely hard to watch the news and not feel like you want to bring them all home right now. But uh, I am not a military strategist. I am not a soldier. I don't know any soldiers, not up close and not personally. Um, All I can bring to the uh, table is having read quite extensively the writings of soldiers who have served in Afghanistan. And it keeps coming back to my mind the same thing that they feel like it's all right for them to criticise the army, they just don't like it when (coughs) civilians do. And I think if I were fighting at the loss of potential life, limb and loved ones, friends, which I'm sure these people in the same units are extremely close to each other, I think the last thing I would want uh, after suffering the enormous loss of morale that they must have suffered in the past few months is... A whole bunch of people sitting here, where it's warm and safe, telling them that they're doing the wrong thing. So mm, you'll awesome. have to excuse me for not being no, prepared no, to the condemn the idea. It. Nobody's criticised the, war, criticized but the but soldiers. There now, and I think Nobody's criticized the soldiers Do you know it, what? It, not in a mean no, way. No, you're a little bit like one of those no, old no. men in the Muppets. So. Uh, it's an easy line. Ian, but uh, it doesn't
0: detract from what I was saying that nobody yeah. here, uh, not one single person on the panel or in the audience, has criticized the soldiers.
1: Um. If you want to know how much comedy can really shape how things work out, Spitting Image is an excellent example. I challenge you to try and think of John Major in a colour other than grey. It's literally impossible. David Steele blamed Spitting Image for destroying his political career because he came... I mean, you could say, of course, he did that all on his own. But he was always pocket-sized. It's very hard to take him seriously. Michael Hasseltine is still popular. He was Tarzan, so why not? Um, It's surprising how much impact political comedy does have. Um, if you have a moment, I recommend very much that you go to see uh, Christian Munju's Tales from the Golden Age, a uh, uh, film which came out on Friday. Uh, Portmanteau, I think it is five miniature films about uh, Romania under Ceausescu. It is, before I go any further, fun. Uh, no, I know it doesn't sound it, but it is. Um, he couldn't possibly have made a film mocking uh, Ceausescu during the reign of Ceausescu. He would have been put to death, and now he can. It, it took oppression to inspire him, and then it took democracy to give him a a place to voice it. And we'll be presented with the horn of truth (laughs) afterwards. So Natalie, your idea in two minutes, please. Uh, dead languages are more useful than living languages, and here is why. Because we are too meek, <coughs> we're too embarrassed, we're too diffident to learn living languages well in this country. We learn French at school, we go on holiday to France, we walk into a restaurant, we go, ah, oh, kill me now, I can't finish the sentence, I don't know how to do it, I wish I were dead, kill me, kill me now. And because of that, people go, oh, we're bad at modern languages, we're no good at learning them, let's not try, let's not make them compulsory on the curriculum, let's make them optional, and then when no one takes them, we'll just become a generation of monoglots and that'll be fine. Oh no, hold on a minute, let's add Arabic and uh, Cantonese onto the... Uh, school curriculum and that'll be fine. No, wait a minute, you would have to learn Mandarin, for example, for six years before you could talk in it successfully. No one is putting in that kind of time. I say to you that the solution to this problem is Latin. Latin, Latin, Latin. It makes you think in a more flexible way. You start learning ideas that you haven't thought of before because your language didn't have a word for them before. You start thinking in a completely different way because you're thinking about a culture that expresses things in a completely different way from the one you grew up learning. You're challenging your whole mind by learning another language. Also, incidentally, you will be really good at spelling in English. We get loads of our words from Latin. You'll be very good at sentence structure in English. We get loads of that from Latin too. You'll be good at being a doctor. You'll know Latin. You'll be good at being a lawyer. You'll know Latin. You'll be good at reading Virgil. You'll know Latin. Did I mention the better way you would know Latin? Latin equals best. <laughs> Failing that, obviously, ancient Greek. Thank you very much for having me.
0: I would like to say that we have Natalie Haynes here with us today in the studio, but no. She is talking to us today through the miracle of Skype. Natalie, welcome to Ancient Rome Refocused. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, What prompted you to write the book?
1: Hmm. Well, I guess uh, I was a classicist for a long time. Um, I did my A-levels, which are the last thing you do before leaving school in the UK, so... um, uh i can't think of the equivalent i was 18 when i took them so whatever that would be in the us i did uh triple classics a levels i took latin and greek and ancient history because <laughs> i decided young that i didn't really want to do anything else um, and then i did a degree in classics and then i briefly taught classics and then while i was doing my degree i started uh, working as a stand-up comic um i was at cambridge which is the home of the famous footlights uh, organization which produced the pythons um Stephen Fry Hugh Laurie who of course you have um, turned into the most famous and successful TV star in the world uh, we just had him you know falling over that's what we thought was good but apparently it turns out he's crazy sexy who knew uh, America it turns out new and now the rest of us um so I started doing comedy there and uh, that became my kind of full-time job and then gradually I realized that much as I loved comedy I really really wanted to write um And I started moving kind of sideways into doing reviewing and stuff like that. Um, So I reviewed a lot of films and plays and TV and it became more and more clear over time that the thing people were kind of hiring me for was the fact that I would watch, say, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and go, the reason this is brilliant is because the climax of season two is the same as Aeneid 4. And suddenly I, I became aware of the fact that that was actually something I really wanted to talk about for longer than just a five minute review. I really wanted to write about it properly. So I think that was probably what started it all off.
0: I think I have a three-part question here. Uh, First of all, uh, have you always lived in London, or where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Birmingham, which is about 100 miles north of uh, London and is – home of, I'm trying to think of somebody internationally famous who's come from Birmingham. Oh, Julie Walters. Uh, There you go. She's the only one I can think of. Um, Oh, and Ozzy Osbourne, of course. Hey, I knew there was somebody who would sent you. Um, So my natural accent is to sound like Ozzy Osbourne. You'll be relieved to hear (laughs) I managed to crush it over time. But I lived in London for about 15 years now.
0: How did you start studying the Greeks and the Romans?
1: Uh, I was one of those... Children who is just incredibly lucky with a really, really great teacher i I feel like somebody needs to write this novel, and i haven 't read it, but it seems to me that pretty much whenever you find somebody who has a real passion for a subject it 's almost always because somewhere in their backstory there is this amazing teacher who just changes the way they look at the world, and that 's what I had. Um, I was incredibly lucky at eleven. I started doing Roman life, um, and then at twelve, that sort of shifted into Latin. And then when I was 14, I think, I started doing Greek as well. And each time I picked up a new ancient language or a new bit of the ancient world, I felt less and less able to put any of it down. So I just ended up becoming more obsessed rather than
0: less. Okay, I'm going to ask a tough question here. Uh, why should we study the classics at all? I think that's an argument that's going on, uh, in, on in the United States with academia. Why, why should we? Well, um, Whenever people ask me this question, I always feel like I'm cheating. But once
1: upon a time, I uh, was a teacher and my boss was a very, very funny man. Um, consciously, I should say, um, he was funny. And he would occasionally, he used to wear a proper academic gown to teach in and stride about the school. Um, and occasionally <laughs> someone questioned him about things. He would say, the house of Western thought has many rooms, but only one basement. And I think that sums it up so perfectly that it's sort of hard to argue with. We should learn classics because how else do we ever intend to understand anything else? It drives me crazy when you watch this kind of We set ourselves up, if we don't learn the ancient stuff, to constantly having to rediscover what people already knew, what people have already told us. When we, I mean, at the most literal sense, in the ancient world, people knew that the earth was round, and then (laughs) that got lost, and we spent ages thinking it was flat as a society. Eventually, we rediscover what the ancients knew all along. Why go to that trouble when you could just read the classics? And culturally and politically, legally, socially, I think... You just save so much time if you go to the place where some of the finest minds of any generation on every continent were thinking all at once. It's just ridiculous not to want to study it.
0: Uh, I understand you went to Cambridge. That is true. Uh, Did you read the classics in English
1: or in Latin? In Latin and in Greek, um, which I was marginally better at, (laughs) very very marginally. Um, So, yeah, no, I still have lots and lots of English translations on my shelves. um, And I still think uh, the Penguin translations especially are almost all brilliant. So, yeah, to save time, I definitely refer to them now in English rather than Latin. It just takes me a little
0: longer to get through. Well, to ask you a question by uh, being a person that's still working on the English language, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you lose something by not reading the classics in Latin?
1: I think you do. And I think that shouldn't make you not feel like you should bother. If you see what I mean, I've, I always have to go for a comparison. I have some French, but not lots of French, certainly not enough French to read, for example, Moliere. So I would rather see a Moliere play in English because then I'll know what's going on than in French. But I know I would probably like it more if I could understand the French better. Uh, Borges is my favourite writer of the modern era. I do see that he's still dead, but compared to the other writers I like, he's positively, you know, springy. Um, I can't I don't know enough Spanish to read Borges uh, in Spanish. I wish I did, but he co-wrote his translations in English. So I suppose that's not such a good example. But yes, absolutely. If you read... Uh, jokes especially and puns and, um, and that kind of meaning in Latin or in Greek, then there's a whole extra layer of meaning that, that we miss. Certainly if you read it in English, there are some people who translate Latin just incredibly well. I think the penguin translations of Virgil or Juvenal have a really, you know, they're really, really good at getting those kind of, um, echoes and plays on words in translation. Um, so, it's better than not reading it but yes you should read it in Latin
0: (laughs) well in your book uh, you hit on the serious subject of waterboarding Uh, this subject comes up every once in a while in the media and has been bandied back and forth uh, whether it fits the definition of torture even though we have a senator named John McCain who experienced it personally in Vietnam and has definitely called it what it is Uh, what can the Romans tell us about torture is this something they wrestled with as well um, well, it depends, I guess, what you mean by wrestled with. I think
1: it's fair to say that morally the Romans had no problem. They, they placed an extremely low value on human life. Um, and it's one of those things I always think is particularly brilliant about the film Gladiator in that, that opening chunk uh, where they are fighting in forest. And I think it's Germania, isn't it? I can't remember now. Um, and you suddenly see what it must have been like to be on the receiving end of the Roman war effort, you kind of you spend all that time reading Livy, if you're um, me at school, um, and translating these chunks where they, you know, the, these people go to the flank and these people bring up the rear, and and you don't think about just how terrifying it must have been to face the Romans who had no concern, no nice Geneva Convention, no sense that there might be something morally wrong about fighting, but just killed because they could. They genuinely believed that might was right, and. So certainly in that ethical sense, I think they had no problem with torture at all. What's really interesting about the Romans' attitude to torture, um, at least in in a legal context, is just how much they realised it was ineffectual. So, um, for example, if it was a capital case, if a man's life was on the line, um, you couldn't torture his slaves. And the reason that torture of slaves exists at all in the legal system is because if somebody owns a person, then they can kill them. If you ask a slave questions about their master, then that master has so much power over them, they could simply, you know, drive them through with a sword. How are you ever going to get an honest answer? So the Romans, always pragmatic, not always kind, the Romans set up torture as an alternative. So they go, OK, this person has the power of life or death over you, but I've got the power of life or death over you now. Now tell me the answer. But when it was a capital case, when someone's life was on the line, they understood that torturing produced just as many lies as truths. And so they, you weren't allowed to do it. So what's especially interesting about the Romans is that even though they had no value on human life, they realized that torture often produced just lies uh, because people will do anything not to be tortured. And you, you get this dialogue happening constantly in, in Roman works. You get it in Cicero, for example, where somebody will say, oh, yeah, but... Of course, the slave said blah. He was desperate not to be tortured anymore. So what depresses me most about the idea of something like waterboarding isn't the cruelty of it. I think you have to acknowledge that cruelty is part of the human condition and depressing as it is. There's not much point wishing it away. We're not going to get through that way. What's depressing is that nobody seems to have learned that torturing people doesn't produce the truth very often. Okay,
0: let's say I have a time machine. See, you seemed like you might. Yes. You just seemed like you might. Yes, I, ha- I have it somewhere on my bookshelf. And uh, putting aside modern conveniences, oh, like the refrigerator, the toilet, fast food, do you think a modern man or woman could adjust to living in 51 B.C.?
1: I do. I think we would adapt quite quickly if we were in... Rome. I mean, I think city to city, if you went from Washington to Rome, that would be probably easier than going from rural to rural, I suspect that rural life now, not that I've ever lived it, you understand, um, is probably a little more sophisticated than rural life, uh, you know, 50 years before the birth of Christ. That, That is just a guess. But yeah, I think... Um, I mean, Rome was in is, was in kind of upheavals through the first century BC, so it probably wasn't super fun in terms of civil war and things like that. But absolutely, they would have had modes of transport. They would have had noise and mess. They'd have had places you could eat out. They'd have had booze you could buy on the streets. People had jobs. People didn't earn enough. Um, I, it wouldn't have been so much fun for me because I wouldn't have had the vote. Um, but yes, I think we would have adapted incredibly quickly. I think the human condition is, is strangely unchanging. There's a great quote at the beginning of Thucydides. I know you're Rome, but give me a little Greek. Let me have a tiny bit of Greek. Um, At the start of Thucydides, um, History of the Peloponnesian War, he says, I'm I'm not writing this for an immediate public. I'm writing this because human nature being what it is, sooner or later, these things will will apply again. So I, I kind of agree with that. I think People are incredibly unchanging through time. So, yeah, I think we would fit in surprisingly quickly if, like Bill and Ted, we
0: could go back in time. Well, for that matter, let's say I kidnap a person from 51 BC, the evil genius that I am, and I bring this person forward into our time. Besides the obvious, uh, what do you think they would have a problem with? Do you think they'd be quite happy at a Manchester United match?
1: I do. I think the the idea of the games, um, it has completely translated through time. That idea of tribalism. Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure if you are a fan of the recently finished and much lamented, at least in my house, TV series, Friday Night Lights. Um, but the idea of a college football team being so, so passionately felt about that people vandalize someone's home when they lose um, or, you know, vandalize their car when there's a match coming up. That's, a, a pretty good example. Obviously, with football, um, it's been uh, by which I mean soccer. Uh, I guess this is going <laughs> out in America. Um, obviously with soccer, then you have the exact same kind of tribalism uh, there's been a, a long history of violence a long and ignoble history of violence attached to it but I mean in exact comparison certainly with the races where the different teams of of, uh, of different colors the whites the blues the greens had incredibly passionate supporters or there's uh, an example of um, uh, gladiatorial games I think uh, in new Carrier, I think I am right to say. Um, and it, it, result, it suddenly turns into this incredibly ugly scene. Um, the Pompeians and the Nucarians all end up laying into each other. And they're banned from having games for 10 years. I mean, exactly what happens now when there's uh, when something particularly ugly happens at a football match. Exactly the same thing.
0: Help, help an American out here. Manchester United. Uh, at, uh, what is their standing in regards to the soccer team? Uh,
1: they are oh what's the, what's the equivalent um i suppose they are the equivalent of the new york yankees in which by which i mean that they are incredibly successful and therefore liking them is almost a bit cheesy does that make sense so you can be very passionately a fan of them and yet at the same time it's not like liking a really cool Uh, you know, underground movement that might suddenly turn up and win. Um, You kind of assume they'll do brilliantly. So that's sort of their default setting. But uh, we're recording this on the day of the Champions League final um, between Manchester United and uh, Barcelona. Um, Don't ask me the rest of their team name. I've no idea what it is. Um, And that is happening at Wembley, not very far from my house, uh, in a couple of hours. So we'll have to wait and see. Yay! (laughs) I'm sure I will be hearing plenty of that before the night is out. (laughs) I guarantee
0: it. Well, your bio says that you, you work as a stand-up comic, and okay. I certainly
1: did, yeah. I've, uh, I've kind of retired now to write full-time, but yes, no, I did. I came over oh, and did gigs okay. in
0: New York a few years ago. I had a lovely time. Uh, well, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, I've been told that British humor is somewhat different than American humor. Uh, do you think there's a difference between Roman humor and what is considered funny in the modern age? I think in some instances,
1: yes. And in some instances, no. Roman humour, I would say, divides sort of into two categories. Um, Comedy, like stage comedy, Plautus, Terence, um, which is known by classicists as new comedy uh, because it's so modern. um, But it is new compared with Aristophanes, who is old comedy um, uh, a couple of hundred years earlier. And new comedy is exactly what then goes on to inspire Shakespeare, um, and then all Commedia dell'arte, uh, so Grimaldi and people like that. This is all based on Plautus. So what you get is lots of mistaken identities, uh, long lost daughters, where one of somebody's wearing a locket, and uh, you know the 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 other half of that locket will identify this person as a long lost daughter or uh, or sibling. Um, you get lots of couples who are desperate to be together, but a sort of miserable patriarch is trying to keep them apart. So, I mean, really quite old fashioned comedy. And I think that doesn't survive particularly well. Um, Although, having said that, I have just seen a a terrific reworking of a Commedia dell'arte play at the National Theatre, which I entirely recommend if any visitors are over here. Um, And it is still showing uh, One Man, Two Governors, it's called. Um, And it's based on the play A Servant of Two Masters, obviously. So they have comedy, which I think probably doesn't travel. It's lots of puns. There's lots of um, runs of uh, uh, long descriptions of things which are quite obscure, like seeds or diseases or something like that, which all begin with the same letter. It's absolutely exhausting. And Plautus was the blight of my teenage years. I hated him when I was 17 and I've never quite got past it now. But then on the other hand, there is satire. Satire is the only uh, type of of literature that the Romans invented. Everything else they pinched from the Greeks, epic, tragedy, comedy, uh, history, biography, everything they got from the Greeks, except satire, which they invented. And that is Juvenal. And Juvenal wrote these huge angry scurai these big rants um which are exactly like stand-up is today um he is racist he's misogynistic he's homophobic he's anti-semitic i'm not saying he's a good person but what i am saying is he's incredibly funny and that i think juvenile is just as funny if if uh, someone ever gave me the opportunity to do it i would love to make a tv program of getting modern stand-up comics to do juvenile rants um and i think you wouldn't notice the difference between their own material and juveniles
0: so I guess that answers the questions. the Romans were funny.
1: Juvenal is super funny, but very, very morally wrong. I, should, I don't want people to think that I go, hooray, racism. I, don't, yeah. I really don't. But he is incredibly funny.
0: Uh, understood. Uh, how did you get into stand-up comedy? Uh, what was your act like?
1: Hmm. Well, I started in stand up when I was a student. Um, so I guess I was about 19 or 20. And um, I fell very much in love with a very handsome man at a party. And he was just beautiful, like a donus if we're going to stick with classical things. And uh, I asked a friend who knew his friend and so on and so on. And eventually I got to talk to him. And we've been talking for about 20 minutes. And he said, you're the funniest girl I've ever met. And I thought, oh, that's not cutest. Um, but funniest is good. That's a start. And I said, oh, we should write something for Footlights, this university comedy society. And he said, yeah, yeah, we should totally do that. And then I, I spare your blushes. But suffice it to say, we spent the night together. Uh, six weeks later, we had broken up and my heart was broken into a thousand shots. And I thought I would never recover. But in the meantime, uh, I had done my first gig and I couldn't get out of it because he walked me to the audition. Oh, we were so romantic. Um, he walked me to the audition um, and, and waited outside. so <laughs> I couldn't just run away, which is what I wanted to do because I was very, very. Fr- I was frightened all the time for about the first. I'm going to say five years of my stand-up career. I thought I would throw up at any given moment. Uh, sometimes I would wake up thinking I might throw up. I was so nervous. And and then I was very lucky that it kind of. It, the relationship did not go so well, but the career lasted me 12 years um, before I quit. Uh, I, I mean, I do charity gigs and things like that still, but I I don't make my living at it anymore. And my act is like, well, at its best, I would like to think it's like the worst of Juvenal. Um, and uh, it was mainly about me and why I was angry or upset. I think my favourite type of comedy has always been based on negative emotions. I, I don't think we need... I've said, I think I say this in the book, we don't need jokes when everything is all flowers and kittens. So you should make jokes when someone you love is ill or something terrible has happened to you or you're afraid of something or you've lost something which is really important to you. That, to me, was always what the basis of, of comedy was until my final show, when I'd finally run out of things to be miserable about. And I wrote that entirely about American detective TV shows because I loved Diagnosis Murder so much. Um, and I still do. So there you are. It was about me. And then when it wasn't about me, it was about Dick Van Dyke. <laughs>
0: The first time you went to the mic, he didn't, you know, kiss you and and push you towards the mic and say, "Okay, honey, be funny.
1: That was pretty much how it went. Yeah, that that was pretty much what happened. (laughs) Yeah, it's a mystery that it didn't all go terribly wrong straight away. But somehow my my need to show off eventually overwhelmed my uh, constant fear of getting it wrong, I think.
0: (laughs) How would you describe the Aeneid? I mean, isn't it really nothing more than propaganda?
1: Oh, the Aeneid is. It's a lot more than propaganda. Well, I think so. I mean, I think Virgil is is really he's sort of my secret favorite um, in terms. I mean, Juvenile is my favorite uh, writer, full stop, I guess, from from Rome. But Virgil is just beautiful. And the story of the Aeneid is so tragic. You know, he spends 10 years writing it and then he dies before it can be finished. Although, God knows, he'd spent 10 years writing it. It was pretty darned finished. and and begged for it to be destroyed. I mean, if Virgil had had his way, we would never have read the propaganda. Um, And the Emperor Augustus overrode that choice and said, no, it it must be preserved. And so, for sure, there is a certain propaganda um, strand through it, definitely trying to tie Rome into the idea of a a sort of greater historical past. I love the idea that 2,000 years ago, people were still trying to say, I mean, this week in the UK, we've had a visit from Obama, tying himself into, you know, an Irish family, what is it, five generations back or four generations back. I love the fact that the Romans, 2,000 years ago, were doing the exact same thing. They were trying to tie their country their city to a, an earlier um uh, civilization of troy because you know the trojan war was such a big story it was so important that of course they wanted to connect themselves to it but then along the way it, you know it, almost by accident he's trying to write a piece of propaganda but he inadvertently writes this beautiful extraordinary poem um which has the most amazing love story i think aeneid four is the most beautiful love story ever written and you can put that on the
0: poster you kind of answered one of my questions. And I appreciate it. Um, I was wondering why you recommended you recommended the fourth book. Now it just makes me wonder uh, why is the fourth book so interesting? Is it is it the way it's written, or is it because of the, it concentrates on the love story? What what interested you about it?
1: Well, it's both. I think what's interesting about book four is um, that it, it's the story of Dido and Aeneas. So obviously, it's given rise to opera and all kinds of other retellings, but Um, It's also perhaps the the book of the Aeneid that Virgil felt was least finished. It has more half lines. You know that this is one of the the things about the Aeneid. This is one of the things you can see that shows that it was unfinished, perhaps, is that there are various half lines. Instead of being six feet, a hexameter, there are only three. And Aeneid four has more in, I think, than any other book. So perhaps he felt that uh, it was the, the least finished, but it, doesn't, it really doesn't read that way. It's such a difficult and beautiful story of this broken-hearted man whose wife has died in the fall of Troy, Creusa, and who's had to sail away and leave her behind when he doesn't want to. He's taken his father and his son with him. His father has died. So he is really, I mean, he's being a, a father himself, but he is completely... On his own in the world, the prince of Troy, the surviving prince of Troy, he's the person who takes responsibility for the remaining survivors. And suddenly he meets this woman and they fall in love through the evil machinations of the gods, by the way. Um, And then when Jupiter notices what's going on, he tells Aeneas that he has to keep moving, that he has to go and found Rome, that he can't stay in Carthage. And Dido's uh, discovery of this and her heartbreak and suicide I think you, you would be hard pushed to find anything that heartbreaking. in in any sphere of art, through any time that you choose. There's the moment where she she comes upon him and realises that he's leaving, and she says, you know, how how can you try and sneak away in the night? What are you doing? And he says, oh, it's not my fault. I don't want to go. And she says, how dare you? You know, you told me your mother was a goddess, but you were born on the crags, from from the crags of the mountains, and you were suckled by tigers. Uh, Don't we all want to say that to somebody who breaks our hearts? Don't we all want to go, how dare you have told me that you were wonderful when I Actually, it turns out you're hard as as nails. It's just such a beautiful scene. And then he can't, you know, she she hits him with everything. She's completely in the right and completely irrational at the same time. And when she says, you know, how could you, how how dare you go? Why don't you wait till the weather's better? You know, your ships will only be wrecked anyway. And he eventually cracks. And this is one of the half lines that we were talking about. Um, He says, eventually, it's not of my own accord. I go to Italy. Um, I, I, I don't want to go. Italiam non sponte secor is the Latin. It's not of my own accord. I, I travel to Italy. You know, he's he's entirely sacrificing what he wants, which is to be with Dido, the woman he now loves, in order to do the right thing. And that the idea of Pius Aeneas, dutiful Aeneas, pious Aeneas, is a a character that has run over and over again, I think, through literature. The idea of a hero who has to do the right thing, even when it makes him miserable. I mean, just off the top of my head, I guess, in uh, is it the Maltese Falcon, where Sam Spade says, you know, when a man's partner is killed he has to do something about it. He, he may not have even liked the guy, but he has to do something. It's about duty. When Buffy, um, I'm always talking about Buffy in relation to the Aeneid, but when Buffy has to kill Angel at the end of season two, when she has to drive a sword to the heart of the man she loves in order to stop literally all hell Breaking loose on Earth, she is being Aeneas. That's what she's doing. She's depriving herself of true love in order to save the world. That's uh, there just isn't a more beautiful story than that. I don't think
0: that is the Maltese Falcon that you described. And in the end, he, he <laughs> tr- yeah, in, even though he, ch- even though he, ch- he, turns her in at the end, even though she's guilty because of the duty he has to his partner.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that it's such an inspirational idea. I think the idea of a of a hero who does the right thing even when it is personally for him the wrong
0: thing. That It's very inspirational, I think. Do you think urban life in Rome is much different than urban life now?
1: Well, I think if you want to know about urban life in Rome, you should go back to my beloved Juvenal because he talks about little else. really. Um, he, I mean, his version of Rome is exactly what anybody who lives in a city would say about their city. No one else had better say it, obviously, because, you know, we love where we live but he complains about the noise, he complains about people, he complains about violence. Um, There's a, a really vile sequence where he talks about, you know, if you're walking home at night and these guys suddenly lay into you, if you fight back, then they'll bring a suit against you. They'll sue you for, you know, assault when actually they assaulted you. Um, they're they're so rich they can afford great lawyers. So you'll lose one way or another. You'll get beaten up and then you'll lose your money in the legal case. Um, he talks about the perils of fire, um, you know, spreading up these wooden buildings. So absolutely, I think he moans about noise. Um, uh, because in Rome, of course, carriages and things like that couldn't move around during the day. They had to move around at night because people needed to use the streets. Pedestrians needed to use the streets during the day. So at night, all the wagons start rattling down all the roads. So they had an incredible amount of noise. And again, if you were wealthy, you could afford for your bedroom to be on the inside of your building. If you were poor, then you'd just live like many of us do now in an apartment over the road and, and get very little sleep. So, yeah, I think urban life is incredibly similar the politics the backstabbing the trade the the grimy underhand deals the black market yes all of it i think all of it is the same
0: in your book you make comparisons to entertainment then and now and the development of drama tragedy and and even comedy has plots changed much since roman times i mean would a roman or greek playwright recognize plots in modern tv shows and movies today Uh, for instance Tom Cruise in the movie Risky Business to me is nothing more than a retelling of a Greek comedy. Uh, the boy uh, A boy's parents leaves home and he falls in love with a local prostitute from the village. I mean, is, is there a lot of similarity?
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's exactly what happens. I love the thought of Sophocles coming forward in time and watching The Wire and realising that the character arc of Stringer Bell is exactly what he does with Oedipus. It's just incredible because obviously the character of Stringer Bell is a drug dealer in Baltimore. He's grown up in the project, so it The idea that he could possibly not die young as a drug dealer is is ridiculous. You know, his shelf life is incredibly short because he has this very brutal background. And actually, he is so clever, just like Oedipus, that he sees that the destiny that he has isn't one that he wants. So instead of carrying on in the world of drug dealing, he decides to to try and get a clean um, income coming in. The money still comes you know, indirectly from drug dealing, but he has property developments and things like that to try and become more respectable. And as soon as he tries to to have a life other than the one he was fated, that's when he gets done over. He gets um, cheated by a senator, and then betrayed by his friends. And he ends up, of course, being shot in an empty building. Um, And uh, the only difference really is that we see it instead of it happening off stage with a messenger speech telling us what happened but it's the same story he's fated to die in a certain way he tries just as oedipus does he tries to run away from that destiny oedipus ends up growing up in corinth he believes that he's going to kill his parents he thinks that the the phony parents they he has, the sort of step parents they he has or his real parents, he runs away to avoid killing them and in so doing he inadvertently bumps into his real father and kills him and then ends up marrying his real mother so Stringer Bell and Oedipus it seems to me it's a perfect match and again and again you find that Greek tragic arc in a uh, movie uh, especially big Oscar winning movies, The Wrestler I guess is a really good example too the idea of this sort of slightly broken man who who could keep himself together if he could just not have to go back, not have to keep being true to his nature, not have to keep going back into the ring. And we know that he's damaged and broken. We see it at the very beginning of the film. We meet the the broken daughter relationship that he has. We we see him trying to rebuild a relationship with her. We see him trying to build a relationship with a, a girlfriend. And we know if he could just walk away from his true nature, he could be happy. But it's a tragedy, so of course that won't happen. He has to go back into the ring, and it kills him.
0: The name of your book is The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. Uh, Could you give us a few examples of how the ancients could guide us today?
1: Well, I kind of think it sounds a bit bad after I've told you how terrible Juvenile is to say that Juvenile is still, I think, a very good um, uh, advisor for us. But one of the most famous lines in all of Latin literature, I think, is... um, men sana sano that we should wish for a healthy mind and a healthy body and it's such a strange moment in juvenile after all these satires when he complains constantly about being poor and not having what he wants and other people having more than him and you know he's always smashing against the inequalities of the world he lives in then suddenly in satire 10 I'm not quite sure what happens. It's like he's had some kind of strange Damascene conversion, albeit a little out of time, um, and and decided that that's not the right thing. And so he says, you know, don't wish for things. If you're going to pray for things, then don't pray for good looks because people will want you and you'll end up having adulterous affairs and this will you know undo you and if you refuse to have adulterous affairs then people will lie about you and that will undo you instead don't wish for money because then somebody will have you know the incentive to kill you don't wish for power because powerful men never die of old age and eventually he says well what should you wish for you should wish for a healthy mind and a healthy body and uh, and you should ca- count a long life as the very least of of life's pleasures so it suddenly he has a very much more, um, I suppose, stoic attitude to the world. He's not the angry young man railing anymore. He's he's an older, wiser man sort of saying, well, you know, perhaps it's better to just calm down a little and try and enjoy what you have and stop constantly wishing for things you can't possibly have. It only makes you miserable. And in lots of ways, it's the same sort of advice you get in Horace a lot. I always feel like I read Horace at the wrong age because I was a teenager when I had to read him at school. And Horace is not, you know, Horace is a middle-aged man. You should read Horace when you're old enough to understand that, Wanting to, uh, you know, sit down and have a nice dinner in the, in your garden is a, is a reasonable thing to want and not the side of being incredibly boring and old. So, yeah, Horace is the one who says carpe diem, um, not seize the day like, why not go skydiving and do something crazy, but seize the day, enjoy this day, wear it out, you know, have a drink with your friends, eat your dinner, have a lovely discussion, um, do whatever you want, but use it up, use up your day. Don't Don't just kind of move through life like an automaton, not noticing it seems like pretty good advice to me
0: how is your book doing
1: in America I don't know because it's only just come out uh when we're recording this so um let's let's hope well by the time this goes out
0: okay (laughs) uh is there anything you'd like to share with us on other projects you may be working on
1: Well, Ancient Guide um, will come out in Spanish in Spain, I think, in 2012. So I have no control over that. I can't read or write Spanish. So it'll be another book I've written that I have no idea what it's They could write anything and put my name on the cover and I wouldn't have a clue. So let's hope they don't do that. Um, But my next book will, I hope, be a novel Um, and uh, it will have reference to the ancient world, but it won't be set in the ancient world. So um, that's where I am at now. Uh, And other things I'm working on at the moment is a radio documentary about vampires and zombies and which is best. Um, My belief is that vampires uh, represent um, people who walk amongst us and we can't we can't quite tell that they are monsters and feeding off us. They look like us. Uh, let's say, like bankers, uh, like Wall Street bankers, um, and then zombies are sort of terrible, disease-spreading. If we, you know, if they catch sight of us, if they touch us, then we'll be contaminated into this end-of-the-world apocalypse scenario, um, a little bit like a major financial crisis. <laughs> so, yeah, we're kind of working on the social and political ramifications of vampires and zombies right now.
0: We've been talking to Natalie Haynes, uh, the writer of The Ancient Guide to Modern Life. Natalie, thank you for being on the show.
1: It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Then this is a brilliant podcast for people who are listening. Please keep downloading it. It is absolutely great. I'm very lucky I can get it over here.
0: Thank you very much.
1: You're super welcome.
0: Before we go, I have to tell you about a podcast that I just got done listening to. It was on Twilight's Histories, show three. The title? Rome Industrial. I was totally enthralled by its sweep of alternate history. It is a listening joy backed up by music that gives it an almost pulsating magnificence. You are basically on an adventure. It is something to listen to with the lights off. To let your imagination go unfettered because you're faced with a steam-powered testudo of pneumatic catapult you're treated to a rome that has not fallen your tour guide is jordan harbor and with a hypnotizing timber to his voice he draws you along the face of the globe as rome conquers the world An interesting sidelight and probably one of the most original ideas I've heard in a podcast in a long time is an interview with a traveling world I might add, Mayan. And finally, your trip ends with returning to the city of Rome itself. It's a wistful look at a city, a people, a civilization where atrophy did not exist and was not a factor in its fall because it did not fall. If you get a chance, listen to it at Twilight Histories with Jordan Harbour. Special thanks to Big Bill Morgan Field who performed She's 19 Years Old at the 26th Annual Chicago Blues Festival.